verses 13 to 21 and can be found on page 980 in your Bibles. So that's Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 21, on page 980. <clears throat> when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. This is the end of the reading. Thank you. Do sit down. And please would you open your Bibles to page 980, which is Matthew chapter 14. Page 980, Matthew chapter 14. We're continuing where we finished last week. Last week, beginning of chapter 14, is about the execution of John the Baptist. And so this section that we're looking at this morning begins with Jesus has just heard about the execution of John, and that's where the story picks up. So page 980, bottom of the page, and it's Matthew chapter 14, picking up from verse 13. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, and we thank you that it is a word that speaks to us across the centuries. And it's speaking to us today. And Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have something to say to each of us here this morning. Maybe some things that we haven't heard before. Maybe some things that we've heard before but need to hear again. Maybe some things that will change our life irrevocably. So Father, please help us to listen well as your Holy Spirit works. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There seems to be a lot of people saying that we live in an era era of heightened disillusionment, particularly disillusionment about politics and even the political process. There is certainly across the Western world, it would seem a weariness, a sense of resignation, even a cynicism 
about government and about politics. And people are leaving political parties, at least the traditional ones, in their droves. I came across some figures not very long ago. Apparently, there were more than twice as many people on the waiting list for Melbourne Cricket Club as there are combined members for the two major parties in Australia. A cynicism, a weariness, a disillusionment. And you may be asking the question, what's that got to do with us? What's that got to do with followers of Jesus Christ? Because that's politics. We're about Jesus, aren't we? We're about God and we're about forgiveness and we're about changed lives through the power of the Spirit, through what, as we've just sung, Jesus has achieved for us on the cross. What has it got to do with politics, with government? And the answer is everything. Everything. As we saw last week, you remember that Jesus comes and when he announces his ministry, when he announces what he's come to bring, he describes it as the kingdom of heaven. That first word is a giveaway. The word kingdom has to do with government. It has to do with rule. It has to do with politics. Jesus comes to bring in a new politics. It's the politics of God, of the kingdom of heaven that comes from God. That is where it comes from. That's why Matthew describes it as the kingdom of heaven. Some of the other gospel writers describe exactly the same thing as the kingdom of God. Jesus comes to bring a new politics. And that means, that means that every single follower of Jesus, every Christian, because they are members of that kingdom, because that's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is somebody who belongs, although they live in this world, although we live in Australia, although we live in a liberal democracy, or wherever it is that people live. If you're a Christian, you are first and foremost a member of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And that means that every single Christian is called to be a political activist. We're meant to be activists for the kingdom. Exponents, speakers, promoters, exemplars of the kingdom. That is what we are called to be. To be part of the kingdom means to live as members of the kingdom. And that means we're all called to political activism. Activism on behalf of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So what is it that we are to promote? What is our message? What is it that we are to exemplify in our lives? Well, first of all, the politics of the kingdom of heaven is the politics of compassion. The politics of compassion. Have a look, would you, at verses 13 to 14. 
Jesus has heard about John the Baptist and he withdraws, but the crowds follow him. And notice verse 14 what it says. It says, when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them. And he heals their sick. And then he discovers, or at least the disciples come and tell him, these people have not had anything to eat. They're hungry. And these are poor people. So even if there was a McDonald's there, which there wasn't, they probably couldn't have afforded to eat there anyway. They're hungry. And I love Jesus' response to that. It's a remote place, verse 15. And Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 15 and he says, you give them something to eat. Don't you love that? I've sometimes wondered what it must have been like for those 12 There's this huge crowd of people, more than 5,000 people. And you come to Jesus with the problem and Jesus says, you deal with it. Do you sometimes feel in your life if you're a follower of Jesus where Jesus says, you deal with it? See, it involves us. And they say to him, "Uh, Jesus, we don't have a great deal. We've only got five loaves and two fish. And so Jesus takes what they had and he uses it so that the disciples are able to feed a crowd of 5,000 plus. Notice it's 5,000 men plus women and children. And there's food left over. There's a remarkable contrast between this banquet, if you like, And the banquet at the beginning of chapter 14. Herod throws a banquet. He provides food. But it's all about Herod. It's his birthday. It all centers around him. It is a profoundly self-centered affair. And incredibly exclusive. But here, notice the humility of Jesus. In verse 14, he says, you give them something to eat. And then in verse 19, having taken the five loaves and two fish, he gives it to the disciples. And verse 19 says, the disciples gave the food to the people. So I want you to imagine you're in the crowd. Who do you see as providing the food for you? Well, it's the disciples, isn't it? Matthew lets us in on what the disciples know, but by and large, the crowd are unaware. They see the disciples giving the food. There's a remarkable humility about Jesus in contrast to Herod, and there's an utterly different motivation. Herod's party, with all its extravagant food and wine, is for a privileged, cosseted group of people. It exemplifies indulgence and luxury. The people who are at Herod's party can afford to eat and more than eat every day of the year. But when Jesus throws a party, you notice, it's for those in need. Because he has compassion. The politics of Jesus is the politics of compassion. 
the kingdom of heaven is characterized by compassion. And it's a compassion that extends to everybody. Sometimes in the Gospels, you'll find what are called sandwiches. You know a sandwich? You have a layer of bread, and then you have a filling, and then you have another layer, and the bottom layer is usually like the top layer. What's different is what lies in between. And sometimes you get some literary sandwiches. Bear with me. What we've got here in chapter 14 are the healings. They come to Jesus and are healed, and then he feeds them. Well, you get a repeat of that in so many ways back in, over in chapter 15. So if you just flick a little bit forward in chapter 15 and verse 29, it's over on page 982. In verse 29, it tells us of another healing incident. They brought their sick and needy and he healed them. And once again, they need food. And in verse 32 it says, Jesus says, I have compassion on them. I don't want to send them away hungry. And once again, the disciples say, we don't have a lot. But he takes what they have and then gives it to them. And once again, the disciples feed the people. This time around 4,000 people. Verse 37, and he gave it to his disciples for them to feed the people. Two incidents that seem the same. Remarkably similar. But there's actually a profound difference between them. I want you to look at verse 31 of chapter 15. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. Here it is. And they praised the God of Israel. What's so significant about that phrase? These are not Jews. These are the outsiders. These are the Gentiles, the mixed groups of people. These are, to use a phrase we'll look at next week, so live well for a week, these are the dogs. They praise the God of Israel. What we get here is a profound insight into the fact that Jesus' compassion extends to everyone. So what's our message? What is it we want people to know? What are we to be proponents of, spokespeople for? Well, it's this, whoever you are, Whoever you are, whatever your history, whatever your experience, know this, Jesus has compassion for you. He has compassion for you. So come, come to him. You need to come to him. You need to be there. You needed to be amongst the 5,000 if you were going to experience the blessing of food. You needed to be amongst the 4,000 if you were going to experience the feeding there. Herod didn't get it because he wasn't there. Jesus has compassion 
for whoever you are. But you need to come. That's our message. Jesus has compassion for you. So come. Politics of compassion. Secondly, the politics of power. It's very interesting, isn't it, that... um, Oh, perhaps not. Coming up to election time, politicians typically tell us what they're going to achieve. And, and usually draw a distinction between what they're going to achieve and what the other parties are not. They're going to make a difference over the next four years or whatever it is. We're going to achieve this. We're going to achieve that. It's the language of power, the ability to do something. But human political power, in fact, human power in general, is always limited. And in the end, in the end, to a greater or lesser degree, the darkness always wins out. However good the intentions, in the end, the darkness always interferes. But look at verse... 22 of chapter 14. We're back in chapter 14 now. Just want to keep you awake. After the first feeding, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus leaves the crowds and the disciples. He goes off to pray. By the way, that's very striking, isn't it? Jesus prays. It's often said, isn't it? If Jesus needed to pray, it probably means you and I need to as well. Think about it. Jesus left the crowds to pray, and meanwhile the disciples are heading across the lake. This is in the north of Israel. It's the Sea of Galilee, so it's not a little little pond. It's a large expanse of water. It's surrounded by hills. The weather there is unpredictable, and it can become very dangerous. So please just think big expanse of water. And the disciples are making their way across the lake in the boat, but the wind's against them, and the weather is bad, and it's getting dark. And it's quite unnerving. Verse 24, buffeted by the waves, the wind was against them. And then just before dawn, they see something. Verse 25 says they see this figure coming towards them. It's still dark. But they see a presence like a specter coming across the water to them. And it's Jesus walking on the lake And they are terrified. What is this? What's going on here? Jesus walking across the lake. Some of you know that I love Lord of the Rings. And, you know, if you don't like Lord of the Rings or you've never read it. Well, if you've never read it, I feel sorry for you. Uh, If you don't like it, I feel even more sorry for you. Uh, Just indulge me. There is a character in Lord of the Rings called Tom Bombadil. It's really hard to know where to place Tom Bombadil. It seems as if he comes from a different era, a different place, a different context, and nothing touches him. Nothing frightens him. He skips over the hills. He's always full of joy. Evil can't either harm him or control him. And wherever he goes, it seems that there is joy and laughter and mirth. And the hobbits are making their way, bear with me, okay, 
making their way, and they come to the house of Tom Bombadil. And as they step through the threshold of his house, they walk into the light and into the joy. You know, I, I've struggled over the years, maybe you have as well, with an image of Jesus like some detective beloved of film noir. You know the kind of detective in those films? They never smile. They're always serious. They're always with furrowed brow. Everything is always intense. And I've sometimes wondered about that with Jesus. I've had this default image of Jesus always serious. Because after all, being the incarnate son is a serious business. And sin is a serious issue. It wrecks people's lives. It ultimately destroys them. And the cost to Jesus, well, it's going to cost him everything. But you know, G.K. Chesterton, I think, had something going for him. G.K. Chesterton said once, in his book, Orthodoxy, he says, Jesus towers above the Gospels. And one of the remarkable things about Jesus is he's never afraid to show his emotions. He gets angry. He weeps. He throws something of a tantrum in the temple and throws the, the, the tables over. You can see his emotions played out. But Chesterton says, I think there's one thing that he hides, and I suspect it's his mirth, his joy. The writer to the Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame. And I, I wonder if there's something of that going on here as he walks across the water. It doesn't trouble him. He's not afraid. Nothing in nature or in evil can touch him unless he so chooses. And I wonder if there's a lightness about his passage across the sea. A sense of freedom, a sense of delight, a sense of joy. For the disciples, it's quite different, of course. They are threatened by nature. In Jewish thinking, the sea and the turmoil of the sea was not only an image of the danger of nature. The nature is wonderful, but it can destroy. It was also an image of the dark forces in the world that can destroy us. The dark forces of evil, of people like Herod who will do evil things who control and destroy. And Jesus comes walking through the storm. It's a powerful image, isn't it? Nothing touches him. He walks above nature. He walks above evil. Nothing touches him until he chooses, which of course he does. In the end. There's something else going on here. There's a very powerful echo from the Old Testament. I want to read Psalm 77. You don't need to turn to it. But here's Psalm 77. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed 
The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Do you hear the echoes? Who is this figure who's coming to them walking across the water? This is the coming of the one who stands above. And that's why he can say in verse 27 of chapter 14, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. The coming of Jesus, the breaking in the kingdom of heaven is the coming of power. Real power. There is nothing that he will not ultimately deal with. And so here's our message. It's about a message of power. Jesus not only has compassion, but he has the ability to deal with every single one of us and every single situation and every history that we carry with us and every fear that we harbor and every circumstance we experience. He has the power. So come. Politics of compassion, the politics of power, and lastly, the politics of deliverance. The politics of deliverance. I haven't known very many full-time politicians. The ones I have known and do know, I observe there are people who've gone into politics with good intentions. I suspect that's true of most of our politicians in Western democracies. Most people go into politics because they make, want to make a difference for good. But good intentions are not enough, are they? There needs to be the ability to make things happen. And the powers of darkness, as we've seen, will always prove too great. The darkness will always, to a greater or lesser degree, win out over us. You see it in what happened to John the Baptist in an extreme form. And there are lots of Herods around. But as I said, the darkness is beyond our control, any of us. But it's different with Jesus. Have a look at verse 28. Jesus comes walking across the water and, and he says, you know, don't worry, it's me. And I suspect they're still worried. And then Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. I, I love that. Some people, you may have heard this, are very critical of Peter. He's so impetuous. Does crazy things. Who does he think he is? Thinking he can walk on the water, all that kind of thing. Frankly, I have huge amounts of admiration for Peter. I would have still been in the boat. I would have still had my life jacket on. But Peter gets out of the boat Jesus says to him, come. I've sometimes wondered, wondered if Jesus is smiling when he says that. 
I wonder if he's smiling because he's saying to Peter, come and share my joy. To walk over the sea. To know that nature can't harm you. Come and experience the exhilaration and the thrill. And Peter steps out into the water. And then in verse 30, he has a moment of realization. So I imagine him, he steps out on the water and... And then he says he saw the wind, which I think means he saw the effects of the wind. And there's that moment of realization where he thinks something like this. This is not normal. I am walking on water. It is not normal. What's happening to me? And he becomes afraid and he starts to sink. And then notice what he does. He cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus pulls him out. Jesus not only has the ability, but he has the willingness to save. And that's what he does. And that's our message. Jesus acts. He delivers. He's compassionate. Whoever you are. He has the power, but he also has the willingness. And we need to know that, don't we? And some of us need to know that really particularly. We might think, yes, he's compassionate for other people, or in general. Or yes, he has the power, but will he save me? Will he deal with my life? And our answer is, yes, he will. Ask him. Ask him. Some very powerful imagery going on here in this little incident. Imagery about the future. As Peter walks on the water, do you know you're getting a glimpse of the future? I, I don't, I don't, I'm a town person. I, I believe that the countryside is wonderful and it's made for holidays. I know. Nature can be awesome, can't it? Uplifting, extraordinary, and also profoundly scary. It has the capacity to destroy us, like a storm on a lake, even for experienced fishermen. But one day, we will not fear nature. Just as Jesus walks across the lake, and nature holds no terrors for him, one day nature will hold no terrors for us. Nor will evil. It will all be dealt with. It's a glimpse of the future. It's also a glimpse of the present. Because you see, Jesus has already broken into the present with his kingdom. He already has the capacity to deal with you and me, to save us. So ask him. Does that mean he's going to rescue you from every single situation in this life? No. But he will change you even if he doesn't change the circumstances immediately. He will change you. He will change how you navigate your way across the lake, if you like, in the storm. Sometimes he may take the storm away. Change your circumstances. Deal with your health. Deal with your circumstances. But ask him, 
We have a message of compassion, of power, and a willingness to act. Let me draw this together. What I want you to notice is that the things don't end there. With Peter rescued and back in the boat. You notice that the disciples' initial response to Jesus coming across them was fear and it's understandable. There is something very scary about seeing somebody walking across the water. There is something unnerving, you see, about Jesus. There is something unnerving about this one who is afraid of nothing and no one. Herod, rightly at the beginning of chapter 14, when he hears about Jesus, is disturbed. He has every right to be disturbed. And I think that for all of us, at some point, there ought to be that sense of being disturbed by Jesus because he is so utterly different from us. And maybe if we've never experienced anything like that, perhaps we haven't fully understood who Jesus is. If we only think of him as this friend, But fear isn't where it ends, nor is it where it should end. Herod really never gets beyond his fear and being disturbed and his superstition. But that's not where it ends for the disciples. Notice verse 33. It ends not in fear, but in worship. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him. That's where it ends. And that's where it needs to end for all of us. The end point is worship. Beyond terror, beyond admiration, beyond any of those things, to worship. And worship is not primarily about liturgy or about church services or about catechisms or about creeds or about sounds and smells and light and atmosphere. All those things are really important. But at best, they are pointers, signposts to true worship. True worship is this. It is a whole life dedication to Jesus. A whole life dedication to Jesus. It is to give one's whole life to Jesus Christ. And that means it touches every area of life. Homes, work, family, our behavior, our moral values, our priorities, our conversations, our aspirations. And it means all of us are called to be political activists, agitators for the kingdom, proponents, demonstrations of the kingdom, that it's broken into our lives, exemplars of it. If you prefer the language, use the language of ambassadors. We are always, always, whether we like it or not, ambassadors of the kingdom to which we say we belong. And we need to be active in that. We need to be good ambassadors. 
in every area of life. By the way, we live in a system where there are governments and politics and political parties, that's how it works. Some Christians ought to get involved in political parties because that's how the system works. Because we're to be proponents of the kingdom. Don't get seduced by the power. Don't think that your party has all the answers. It certainly does not. Christians are realists. It's only when the kingdom comes in all its fullness that everything will be dealt with. But we are to be agitators for the kingdom. And when as Christians, sometimes some of us complain about our political leaders and our politics, maybe we ought to ask whether we should be more involved. Well, that's only for some, but for all of us. Every area of life is to be a living, speaking, acting demonstration of the kingdom. And our invitation is to come because Jesus will have compassion, to come because he has the power, he's able, and to come because he's willing. I want to finish. I am going to finish at this point. I want to, I want to leave you with a picture in your mind. I, w- I want you to... You can close your eyes if you like. I know this is church, so that's weird, so you perhaps shouldn't do that. I want you to have an image in your mind. I want you to imagine that across the hills in first century Palestine, you can see lines of people coming, and they're all streaming in one direction. Most of them are dressed very shabbily. Some of the clothes are barely clinging to their bodies. There are young mothers clutching still children. There's an old couple you see, and they're supporting each other as together they hobble along the road. There are people whose faces are marked by suffering and pain and despair and grief, and they're coming in their hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and you see them, and they're all making their way But there's a certain intensity about that journey they're making. And the reason they're coming is because they've heard that Jesus is there. They've heard that Jesus is the one who has compassion, who has the power to deal with their lives, and who is willing to do something. And so they come to Jesus. Have a look at verse 35 of chapter 14. When the men of that place recognized Jesus, Jesus has crossed over and landed on the other side. When the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched it or healed. They're coming because they've heard, because they've been told. As you hold that image in your mind, I want you to think about Willoughby. Imagine that line, those lines of people were not in first century Palestine, but they were your neighbors and your friends. And they were streaming towards Jesus. 
because they'd heard about his compassion and about his power and about his willingness. And so here they are, they're coming. Line after line of them. Imagine that. Imagine. What would it take for that to happen? Well, certainly nothing less than what it took then. The people told them. The men of that area told them that Jesus was there. If you remember the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we all have a responsibility to tell them. They will not come unless we tell them. Would you like to see that happen in Willoughby? We need to tell them. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will write your word into our hearts so that you change our thinking, our priorities, our convictions. Father, may we all be people who have heard about Jesus and come. And Father, for those of us who have, may we be those who tell. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing our last hymn. Please would you stand as we sing.